Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Bring by Walk Your Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm your host, and I'm only as hip as my guest. And uh, I got a hip guest today. This guy, he's 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 a rock and roller. You know, he's been on he's been on TV. He's uh he's a he's very popular. His name is uh, Chips Enough. How you doing, Chip? Very good, Mister Steve Cooper. Good to hear your voice. I'm glad to have you on. You know, it's funny. I, I talked to you. We, I reached out to you a few weeks ago, and you were going to L.A. to do a rock and roll fantasy camp. How did you get involved with that, and what does that entail? And it must be great because there's so many legendary people that do that event. It's quite an honor to be on there. Uh, uh, there was a guy who used to manage the monkeys, and uh, he puts the whole thing together. His name is uh, David Fishoff. David came on our we had a TV show in Chicago here on, on the U called the Man Cow Show. I was a co-host. David came on the show. He said, hey, would you be interested in, in uh, being a counselor at one of our camps? I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to try it. And basically what it is in Sesame Street terms is people around the country that want to live their life vicariously through musicians sign up for this. You put a band together with all the counselors that are there, six or seven different musicians from big bands. They put a band together. They have three days to put the group together. And you learn three or four songs, and you play in front of a legendary Whiskey A Go-Go crowd. And it's, it's, it's really a wonderful event. And it's a chance to bond with these people who have been lifelong fans of music. And there's doctors and lawyers and different people in the, in the field of life that want to be a musician. And they can't do it because they got regular great gigs. So they sign up for this, we play, we learn the songs, we play a couple of gigs together, and it leaves an indelible mark with everybody. And I, I did a few of them. I did one with uh, Cheap Trick and Blue Oyster Cult, and did one with the guys in the Eagles and uh, Paul Daly from Kiss. And just this way, I, I also did the one with Stone Temple Pilots and uh, Alice in Chains, and then they called me back again to do the last one, which was uh, a great camp with uh, members of Guns N' Roses and Heart. See, that's such an amazing thing, you know, and for being a musician, it's a great opportunity because, you know, I'm a big sports fan and, you know, people can do, you know, fantasy camps for baseball and stuff like that. But being a musician and getting to meet musicians is people much just being all of you. And then when you guys give them advice and, and jam with them, it must make their year, their week, or even sometimes their lives, even if they're huge doctors. That's a big thing to be on stage, especially at the Whiskey. I mean, that's like, that's a legendary joint. Absolutely. That's the, some of the biggest bands in the world played there from the Doors down to Led Zeppelin to Guns N' Roses. Uh, quite, quite, yeah, for even bands of, that, like me who have been working and, and dedicated their life to music, uh, to get up on stage and play with those heavyweights is great. But it's not just that. It's about the hang, too. You're, you're with the musicians for 10 hours of the day, and you're having lunch together, you're having dinner together, and you're telling stories. And you really get a chance to bond. All my classmates, they're constantly emailing me and sending me messages telling me how much they love me. Uh, what a great camp it was. And it's, it's changed their life. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be involved in. Uh, David Fishhawk has been doing this for quite a few years. And uh, they got a new one that's just starting up right now with uh, the legendary Judas Priest. And that's going to be massive. Uh, I'm going to miss that one, however, because uh, enough stuff is getting ready to go back out on tour. Now, it's right during that time. now, when did you start playing guitar? When did you know that you wanted to be dedicated to music? And I think now, I mean, because we're a little bit older, it's it's music was more 
available, I think, is with the system. You could go to a school and you could play. And I think now a lot of schools are getting rid of their funding. But when did you know? What what made you sit there and want to get into music? Was it a young age or did you wait till you were later? Or when did it happen? Well, I used to play baseball. I was a pitcher. I tried out for the Cincinnati Reds, Milwaukee Brewers, Chicago White Sox. Uh, that's what I was going to do for a living is play baseball. However, during that time while I was pitching, I was also playing music and I'd be watching Cake Biscuit Flower Hour or uh, um, uh, what was it? Midnight Special, uh, Don Kirsten's Rock Times, so my family would let me stay up late. And I asked my dad, Dad, can I stay up and, uh, and watch uh, the shows tonight? And he said, yeah, it's every Saturday they had it on. And I'd watch Alice Cooper and Sweet and uh, all the big English bands that would come Pink Floyd. Whoever was on the show, I'd, uh, I'd get a chance to watch. And I think that's what put the bug in me. And I realized after a while, uh, I had more to say writing a song than throwing a curveball or a slider or a forkball. Uh, and I love the camaraderie of sports. I love being with the team and all, and all of us together working for that common denominator, which is to win. Uh, but I just took some of those elements of when I played sports and used it putting the band together. And I was lucky enough to where in uh, 1984 I put together Enough's Enough. Before this, before Enough's Enough, I had a band called Degeneration. And it was the first punk rock band to ever play Las Vegas. And uh, we played all over the place. We opened for Boss Gags and we opened for Grateful Dead. And I, was, I was 17 years old. I graduated from, from the south side of Chicago in a little place called Brother Rice High School. And a week later, I was in a car driving to California. I moved in with my aunt. Uh, after that band fell apart because of substance abuse and promiscuity, we just couldn't keep it together. We were too young, and it was the inmates were running the asylum. Uh, I realized, well, maybe I should put my own band together, and I uh, eventually put together enough stuff with my brother Donnie. And uh, we started the band in 1984 at, at Grandma Grandpa McNulty's basement here in Blue Island, Illinois, and uh, recorded a bunch of songs, just Donnie and myself, and. Uh, play the cassette tape for all our friends and everybody goes you guys got something great here and then we decided let's just do it full time and uh eventually in 1989 was discovered by uh, a guy named doc mcgee and uh doc was kind enough to take us under his wing and got us a deal with uh another guy named derek showman who used to be the singer from general giant and he uh, took a liking to the band loved the songs everything was recorded in my bedroom basically out of a four track Jazzcam uh, with a drum machine, just Donnie and myself, and uh, the record company loved it. Signed the band, and in uh, August 22nd of 1989, we put our first record out and our first single, new thing. And I've been chasing the cure ever since. Well, what was? Where did you find your? Uh your sound like you know i mean who were some of your influences i mean you know you said you we were a punk band but then when you sat there and you and your your brother were putting the band together where did you find your your sound and what you wanted to hear you know sound like and, and what was some of your uh inspiration for writing because when you're young you know we don't you know you know what it's like 18 19 we're a lot different now when you write a song now but i mean where did you find all the inspiration as as you were you were kids Believe it or not, it came from our parents. Uh, they listened to everything from Black Sabbath to Stevie Wonder to Pink Floyd to Mata Hoople uh, and, and a million other bands in between there. But we, a lot of our stuff that we grabbed onto and embraced was from the across the pond. And we, you know, we love bands like like Squeeze and Led Zeppelin 
Yeah, we just, you know, it was a big potpourri of stuff here in the United States, of course. We were listening to Cheap Trick and Aerosmith. And then we'd switch over and listen to bands like Queen. So, you know, just put it all together. And, and, and uh, uh, there's, uh, there's a bunch of different bands. There's so many of them. I'm, I'm, I think about it. I think we, I, if I wrote down a list, there would probably be, you know, 300 influences easily there. But the main bands were, you know, the top 12 bands that were, uh, in the UK, some of them were underground, but a lot of them, uh, you know, broke the glass and were able to sustain a career. When we put the band together, we just said, let's try to make records that compete with those bands. And quite a lot of the uh, all thoughts in our mind, we thought, well, maybe, maybe we're jumping conclusions where we're not as good as those bands, but it wasn't about that. We were writing songs for ourselves, and if they passed the test of time with us, then we'd let the audience hear them. And it was a, a trial and error, i got to be honest with you. We probably have four or five albums. We have 20 albums out right now. Enough stuff is 20 albums out, counting our live albums and greatest hits. And uh, there's a, quite a plethora of material. I, I bet you we have uh, another four or five albums in the can right now of all the demos and stuff that we've never released. Uh, so we, we're writing machines. That's all we do is sit in the bedroom every single day and write songs and just coming up with material. And uh, my mom and dad would be constantly yelling, hey, you guys, turn the fan on because the whole house smells like hot. <laughs> but but uh, it, was, it was good for us. We were passing the time and we were keeping it fresh and exciting. And in the early days, there was no drugs. There was no promiscuity. It was just about making great records and coming up with really strong songs. And, and we eventually started uh, getting to our peak uh, around uh, 87, 88. We found a guy who had a Brinks truck full of money. He was kind enough to put us in a, in a studio that was uh, very reputable and bands like Chains Addiction and Cheap uh, Trick and different bands from the Midwest would come in there and make records. And uh, we started demoing some stuff out and, that's when we ran to Doc McGee, and Doc says, you know, i got three cassette tapes in my car, Chip, two of them are your band. And I said, oh, thanks, Doc. He says, i got this friend. He signed Cinderella and Bon Jovi over a polygram, and uh, Atlantic Records has given them their own imprint. And his, his name's Eric Showman, and, this, and the label's called Atco Records. And, of course, we looked it up, and they had bands like the BGs and Mount. So Buffalo Springfield. We said, man, that might be a cool label. Uh, so... We sent some stuff out to them, and uh, from there, uh, the label flew to Chicago. Seen the band at a rehearsal, it was terrible. Uh, there was tons of chicks at the place. We weren't paying attention. We weren't focused. We were drinking, smoking, and you know, just out of control. And we, were, we were acting like we sold 10 million records already. And uh, he played one song. We played one song for Derek Shulman. Derek says, uh, uh, Yeah, hey guys, you can hear something else. And Donnie says, uh, Let me know if the guitar player broke the guitar string. And Donnie says, let me know if he blew the deal, I'll fire him right now. And it was, it was just, uh, we were just laughing. We, it was all real loosey-goosey, organic rehearsal. Not, we acted like there wasn't even a record company there. And then we played one more song from him, and we said, yeah, have you heard enough? He says, I certainly have. And we thought, well, that's okay. He heard a couple songs, and we're going to find a deal somewhere. And the next day, he sent us uh, a facsimile for uh, a record deal, and uh a few dollars in there and we had no money at the time we were completely broke uh, we were working construction jobs painting houses building floors uh, doing all kinds of stuff my, my brother did heating and air conditioning so he'd bring me a lot of jobs and we really had no dough at all we really focused our attention just on uh, writing songs and lo and behold we uh, went to the studio did the record and the rest is history 
What is that like when you think about it? You know, you're, as you said, you were working day jobs. You thought you had a bad audition because, you know, it was very loose. What is What goes through your mind, especially as a younger guy and doing something you love, that all of a sudden someone says, hey, man, Chip, take this money. I mean, what as how do you keep a level head? Because anyone, it seems like anyone would get cocky at something like that just because it's just our natural instinct because we sit there and it's life-changing. I mean, what? how did you guys keep grounded? Well, I don't think we were a matter of, even though we were probably a little bit cocky, I think it was just a matter of we wanted to get out of this hellhole of a life, which was just sitting in the bedroom and writing songs and then working jobs at nighttime, painting and doing construction jobs. We wanted to do something that was different. We knew that uh, there was an opportunity around the corner, but at the time there was so many bands out there and it was really tough to get a major label, let alone any kind of record company to sign a band. Um, we knew that, that if we kept working real hard, that uh, you do the hard work and the money will follow. Uh, we had no idea that record record deal was going to be as big as it was. When we first signed uh, with the Encore Mac Records, they gave us $225,000 for the four of us. At the time, we had a manager, uh, and we had a guy who was a financial backer. And uh, we immediately, uh relationship fell apart because they wanted to take all the money, so we fired the one guy because he said the publishing meant nothing, and we didn't know anything about publishing, which is the ownership of the songs. And uh, we found out through the label that it, it wasn't right, and that the, those are deals were, uh, in a lot of people's minds, uh, uh, certainly not fair to the artist. And uh, we ended up firing the management company. We hired uh, Doc McGee, and we kept our manager, who was our day-to-day guy at the time. His name was Bob Brickham. And we went right in the studio and started recording. And when we took the monies that we had, and we said, well, we'll just use that to make to buy equipment so we can have some gear. And uh, we'll pay each other. Everybody will get a small little salary so we can pay our rent because we all live in apartments. And uh, that was it. Our, our Really, our focus was, well, let's make a great record and make this huge. And we, we, any band says they don't want that, just a liar. Uh, because the main focus for us was two things. One was trim, because we love women. And the second thing was, let's make a living making some great music. Uh, but I think the songs were first and foremost, before the trim, before the party and, uh, and extracurricular activities. We really wanted to make a great record. And that was our main focus. And when we went in the studio, you know, we weren't playing games at all. When we first started recording, it was a little uh, outside because uh, the management company at the time was... Uh, they were hard partiers too, and they were living their lives vicariously through our band. So there was a plethora of cocaine, there was a lot of drinking, there was a lot, a lot of substance abuse, there was, was certainly a ton of promiscuity. But and when we started recording the songs, which were recorded basically live in the studio, we started realizing, hey, we got to start focusing here, we got to make this great. Then other bands are coming to the studio, like uh, James Addiction or Cinderella. Or uh, Adrian Blue from King Crimson and, uh, and Frank Zappa, and they were all making records there. And we said we we kind of do something. And listen to what they're doing. They're recording some great stuff. We and if we're going to compete with these guys, we got to be a little more focused. And we started really nailing it. And the record company never showed up one time while we were making the record. By the way, we just recorded the whole thing and then we sent it to them, uh, and they accepted it because the demos were so strong. The record company felt you know okay, let's leave it alone. It's not broken. There's nothing to fix. You leave it alone. But the band finished the recording, and we, we did the whole record, sent it to them, and they said, okay, we got a guy that we want the next day album. And they called this guy named Paul Lanny, who 
was the guy who was responsible for Megadeth. Uh, he sells the Who's Buying, and he came in there and mixed the record up, and it sounded great. And then we, that was time to, that, that's when the work started. We had to go to New York, meet the bigger company, talk to everybody, and it was all about uh, spending time uh, focusing on how to promote this album. Now, now, first of all, we, with the band name, how did you come up with the name? And then the spelling is different. And that's one thing, you know, it's always about marketing. And the name catches your eye. I mean, and that's like when I used to do stand-up comedy, my mom said, you should use your name Steve, S-T-E-E-V, because it's different. I said, no, mom, that looks stupid. But how did you come up with the spelling of Enough's Enough? And I know originally it was the word Enough ends Enough, then you switched it, right? It's true. Let's, let's, uh, I want to apologize for anybody out there that's named S-T. So I said goodbye to my family, 
and jumped in a tour bus, and I didn't come home for a year and a half. Well, you know, I was going to ask you, because I'm, I'm from the MTV generation. As I said, I think we're around the same age. And I remember how videos back then were made such an impact. I still remember the one MTV premiered. I, I still remember you know, the video, Killed the Radio Star. I remembered all that stuff. And what was the process for you making videos back then? Because I know now people make videos, but back then you were a new band, but you had a good look, you had a good song. They knew people were going to dig you. Did they put a big budget into it? Did you have any influx or insay into how the video, your first video was made? Or did they just say, here's what you're going to do, guys? Uh, interesting that you mentioned that, Steve. Yeah, you've done your homework. Uh, back then, in those days, and I was right on the cusp of the 80s, so budgets were just, I was right at the end. Uh, after Enough's Enough, bands weren't getting video budgets like, like we've seen. But record company would come to you and they'd give you a, a list of directors and videos to look at. You'd pick what you thought was, you'd pick, well, you wouldn't pick, you would say, oh, here's what I like, and then they would make the decision. So they saw this guy named uh, Ralph Zeman and Benji Howell, and they recorded, they did Faith No More's video with the, with the flopping fish. Uh, they also did uh, some other artists too, uh, uh, Vanessa Williams and some other, some other pop stuff, and uh, we watched the videos, and we liked the best sense of balance, and we just went to regular company. So we we think this guy's pretty cool, and it just so happened that Derek Showman, the, the president of the label, was friends with them because they're all from England. So he flew them, and then the video budget when we seen it, we didn't know what the budget was until we got there, and then we found out that it was a it was six figures. So we thought, well, you know, we should probably make a great video here, and we show up on the set at six o'clock in the morning. Well, we had no threads at all, by the way. We were wearing our stuff that our sisters and our family had in their closet, you know, colorful, flamboyant, glitter rock stuff. And record company says, we're going to give you $2,000 for clothes, and which we thought was a lot of money, which was nothing. And everybody got to buy one outfit. We showed up on the set, and there was a guy named Paul Starr that was there, and he was a, a makeup artist who works with all the big, huge bands. And Paul fits us all up and glammed us up and made it real colorful and flamboyant. And then we seen ourselves, we said, man, we wish we looked like this every single day, not knowing that as soon as we come out, uh, that's going to be the way people are going to perceive us forever. And maybe if we came out with jeans and T-shirts, you know, we'd be as big as you two right now. We don't know. But at the time, MTV was looking for bands like that that were colorful because most of the bands were, that were being played on MTV were glam and were, were glitter rock, you know. And when I say that, I'm talking about bands like Pantera and Guns N' Roses and White Snake and Poison. Uh, all the bands had that kind of look. Some of them were able to to switch out and, uh, and change their image, and, and it would last it. Uh, but most of those groups were were blink glam, just like we were. You know, we're all copping for the same. We're all swimming in the same ocean. And uh, when the video came out, MTV loved the colorfulness of it and, the, and how flamboyant the band was, and they immediately pushed it. And if we would have came out with season two for or had a look like you too, maybe you wouldn't be talking to me right now. So uh, looking back in hindsight, I think that maybe it was smart because we came out before we had a record deal. We were a colorful, flamboyant band. With, why shouldn't we do it once we made the record? Uh, about three or four years, and we cut our hair and, and grew goatees and tried to fit in with the, the whole Seattle thing in the early 90s with uh, Seattle... Uh, grunge scene with Allison um, Chains and Nirvana and Mud Honey and uh, Soundgarden, but, but unfortunately, uh, you know, the, 
guards changed at that time, and we found ourselves uh, have gone back to where we were, which was uh, the Glitter Rock Band that everybody knows us as. Now, I have a question. You, you know, you'd said, you know, the, the tour bus came up. You guys had a tour bus. Now, it's different. You've been playing bars and stuff like that. But where were you going on tour? Where All of a sudden, where did this take you? Did, and you didn't have the book it. They just said, here's the date you guys are going to be at, or what happened? Yeah, the uh, record company said, okay, so we're going to put you on this tour, and it's going to be with a band called Badlands. And Badlands was uh, J. Lee from Ozzy Osbourne's new group. He had Ray Gillen from, uh, uh, he played, he used to work with Black Sabbath. He was a Sabbath for a while. A drummer from Kiss was in the band as well. Great faith, and of course, so it was a, an all-star band of uh, real veterans, and they, their record was coming out in Atlantic. So it was a month tour opening for Badlands. Uh, it, but as soon as we started the kind of tour, MTV started playing the new thing video, and it was almost like we were uh, uh, bigger than they were at the time, even though we weren't. We're all veterans who were still making records with the previous bands. Uh, MTV was so powerful that every single night the audience was at least 50-50. And it started more toward us. We went out for about a month and a half with them, playing every single show completely sold out. Just playing clubs, by the way, in small theaters. And, you know, uh, 600 seat venues to 1,200 seat venues, completely sold out, jam-packed every single night. And that's what started it all off for enough, because right after that, we immediately got another tour and it was playing a, a bigger places and we were headlining. Now, now, when you were playing every night, you know, and, you know, you're really cutting your teeth, did you feel the band, I mean, do you get tighter when you're playing every night? I mean, is it something that you, every night is another experience where you feel like, your sound is getting stronger and your live show is getting better? Or do you sometimes in the very beginning, do you peak a little bit because you're not sure which way to go with it? No, I think the band got stronger every single night. We were playing five, six nights a week. So uh, by the end of a couple of weeks on that tour, the band was on fire. Shows were great. We knew some of it was some of the shows choreographed. We had no tapes, no sequencers, no guys backstage. We weren't doing any of that stuff at all. We were just sing, plugging in and singing and playing every single night. And, you know, you listen to that record, it's, it's pretty high end. It's, it's right in your face. It's fidelity-wise. It was all done on, on, a, on a two-inch tape, so everything was analog. And it was us playing basically live in the studio with really minimal overdubs. So, But it was really difficult to get it that sound every single night and make sure that it was close to what the record is, where nowadays artists are going out there and everybody's got tapes and sequencers and and they get a chance to uh, make the show sound a little bit more like the record because they got the other parts going on. We didn't have that uh, opportunity back then, and I think the shows got strong. What was the problem was after a month or so on the tour, when the record started taking off, and MTV was playing the video only in the top ten every single day in the top ten countdown with Tons of Roses and Motley Crue and Poison and all those big bands. That's when the... We had uh, problems with promiscuity and substance abuse, and people were showing up every single night with, you know, ounces of cocaine and tons of cocktails and pills and whatever they could get to, get to try to get close to the band. And that hurt us a little bit. It slowed the rundown a little. But uh, we found ourselves, uh, we had good management, we had strong people around us who tried to keep us together. But 
uh, you know, once the inmates start running the asylum, it gets to be very difficult. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's a real rock band, and we don't pull any punches. And along with uh, being in the rock business, uh, those other things that come in, involved. And you got to be strong and be able to, to uh, sustain a career without letting those little extracurricular activities try to sh- uh, slow you down. And I think it, with the trial and error, we've always fought uh, when it came to substance abuse. We've had those problems, but we've always been able to conquer it and come up with the great records. But I think some of that had to do with uh, some of the substance abuse problems and the, and the little things, the little hiccups that we dealt with were a big part of uh, our songs as well. It gave us a lot to write about. Well, as you as you after the first album was becoming popular and you were very getting popular and you guys were living the rock star life, when you were on the road, were you already looking towards the next album? Were you already writing or were you just living for the moment and saying, you know, when we have to make the next album, we will? What was the process for making your follow-up? No, Donnie and I were writing machines. I don't want to sound uh, cocky, but the fact of the matter was uh, a car is designed with a front seat and a back seat, and Donnie and I were sitting in the front seat, and we were coming up with tunes. We had it together. We knew exactly what we wanted to do for the next record, and we were coming up with new stuff all the time. Even when we were recording the second album, Strength, we were writing some of the songs while we were recording the new material we already had. Uh, in the studio. We have one studio where we're tracking the record and then we got a little bit of a break. Danny and I would go in the other room. We'd start showing each other ideas that we had for other songs. So a lot of the record was was written before we even went in the studio because we demoed all the songs out. When we got off tour, we had a couple weeks to do that. And then once we got to Los Angeles and started tracking the record, a new stuff would come in. Great new ideas and we just started putting them all down. In that second album, we recorded 32 or 33 songs without the record company's consent, by the way. We just started rec- recording all the songs we could, and we thought, well, we're just going to put a double record out. Let's not tell a label about it, and we'll be the first band that ever comes out with a sophomore release with a double record. So we recorded all the songs. The record company eventually came to Los Angeles and, uh, just to the recording studio, a place called Music Grinder. We recorded over a one-on-one, and we recorded over the Music Grinder. We got kicked out of one-on-one, got kicked out of the studio after about two weeks because Allison Chains was coming in to record their record. And then we went over to um, the Music Grinder to finish the album. And Derek Shulman showed up, and he goes, yeah, so what do we got, guys? And we showed him, we got 33 songs. And he's like, guys, this is great, but we got a, we got a problem here. But it's a good problem. We said, what's there? He says, too many great songs. Let's just cut it in half and just like make it a, a, a 14 song record. We don't want to give them too much material. Keep the other stuff for later on. And, you know, we were pissed off about that. We certainly wanted to put a double record out, but we didn't want to ruffle the feathers of the Peacock over at Atco Records. So we said, okay, we'll do that. And we just took the songs and we, we snuck 15 songs on that record. And then put it out there, and we thought we had a juggernaut of an album. We were really proud of it. All our friends that were in the studio at the time hanging out with us, the guys in Cheap Trick and Dweezil Zappa and different actors and actresses that came by to visit us in the studio, all thought we had something. They were blown away by what we were doing. So when the record came out, and to our dismay, that's when Soundgarden, Allison Chains, Bud Honey, uh, and you know the whole Nirvana, the whole Seattle thing came in there, and uh, most of the bands that came out when we came out took an ass weapon, and uh, rightly so. Some of them, it was time to go, uh, and some of us were able to s- 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 
cars and continue to move on. And we were one of the lucky ones. We went out on tour on that record, and I think it was a decent tour for us. Great turnouts, uh, but we didn't get the support that we thought we would receive at radio. We, uh, it's a small playlist out there. We hung in there. And uh, we were able to get through that record and make another record. Well, you also, I think, off that record, you ended up on David Letterman, right? That's correct. Uh, you know, that uh, come along with the first album was a gold record. So with success comes some wonderful opportunities. And for a small little band like us out of Blue Island, Illinois, to get a chance to, to be in the national spotlight, that was good. And Rolling Stone grabbed onto us and uh, picked us as hot new band of the world. And uh, from there, we uh, were able to uh, develop a relationship with uh, none other than uh, the great Howard Stern. And Howard uh, had us on a show, and we both said hello to each other, and we had each other right there. He, he loved the band, he loved the disposition, the way we carried ourselves. He, he really admired our strut, and he thought that we had some great songs. And because of him, I, I really believe that a lot of doors opened up for us, and one of them was uh, David Letterman. And... David's from Indiana, so he's a Midwest native, and we we went on the show and played the song, and it was a great, we got caught and smoked a pot in the boiler room there before the show, but uh, no harm, no foul, uh, had a great performance, afterwards we shared a cigarette with Letterman and a cigar, he smoked cigars, and uh, he goes, I love the band, you guys, I really, really believe in you guys, you know, I wish you the best of luck, and love to have you back on the show again, and Lo and behold, uh, a year later, we were back on for the second time. So uh, was some good moments came out of that. It, it must be, I mean, first of all, it's so funny, you know, I, I watched Late Night TV, but I mean, I grew up watching Letterman, and when Letterman was on, I remember when we would watch him when we were in college, and he wasn't that known, and, and Letterman was also, the one thing is that people don't know is, Letterman had a lot of bands on. Letterman had a good musical taste. I mean, he, he was one person that, you know, he sat there and would play bands, I think, that he dug. Yeah, he's definitely a fan. I mean, uh, uh, Mor uh, Morney, who uh, who booked the show, obviously went to him and said, "Here's what, here's what I got for you." But David was the guy, the final uh, final yes guy uh, when it came to bringing bands onto that show. And Morty would bring the bands on, and then Letterman would say, "Okay, I like this or um, this. I don't think this is right for the show." And he, he Letterman's always known as a guy who pushed the envelope and. And he always wanted to break new bands, and he still he did that all the way up to the end of his career on the show. So it was definitely Letterman was the guy. But I think he listened to his team and kept his ears and eyes open to what was happening around him. And uh, he just he was on the cutting edge, and he's one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest that we've ever had since Johnny Carson. Now, now when you know when you did the album, you said everyone said it was you know a great album, and then you said the music you know, the scene started changing a little bit. What goes through your mind when you sit there and you know you, and it's not just in your mind going, oh, this is a great album. People are saying to you, hey, Chip, man, you guys got something special with this. You know, Rolling Stones saying it's something special. What goes through your mind mentally when you sit there and you have something that you know is, is a diamond, but all of a sudden the whole scene starts to change? How do you keep how do you keep going? I mean, how do you keep resilient when you sit there and you know this this should be a much bigger album because everybody loves it? Well, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. It's, it's the resident design. And you just know when you got something really strong, and, and especially when all your peers, the guys you look up to are healing you. 
So when it doesn't hit a home run there, you start second-guessing yourself. And we, we didn't second-guess ourselves musically. We second-guessed ourselves as far as the people who were around us. Maybe we don't have the right team. Maybe we're just doing something. There's not a vigorous retail and marketing campaign here. Or maybe the scene is just changing. We, you know, that's, a, that's the thing. We knew one thing. Let's just keep writing songs. That was the most important thing. Let's keep writing great songs. Why is there going to slip through? There's going to be a movie, a TV show, a soundtrack, a commercial. Somebody's going to grab onto something and give us the opportunity to brand this band or we can move forward. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, that The whole Seattle thing, thing happened. And, and most bands, like the Beatles back in the 60s when they came out, and Dave Clark Five and, and Paul Revere and Raiders, all them great bands fell to the wayside. It was no different for uh, that whole Seattle scene with us. Uh, we were one of the lucky ones to be able to stay in there, us and a, and a handful of others, where we said we're not going to take no for an answer, and we're going to continue to move on, and let's just keep writing great songs and go out there and, and have great performances, play great shows. And that's the, the most difficult part is when you're, you come out of the box. You start, first of all, you start playing when you're in a band. You're playing to 20 people in the crowd, and then you get, if you're lucky enough to get a record deal and you get a tour like we did, uh, then you go out and you're playing at your play at 200 to 500 people a night, and if it takes off and it and it's got wheels, you find yourself playing you know thousands of people every single night. And then when you take a beating like we did, and you find yourself where the, the radio's not embracing your single, and you're not and people aren't answering your telephone calls, and you go out and you do a club tour and you're playing at 200 people again, that's the, the most difficult part of it because then you need something to help you to bring you up and bring you and bring you back down. And that's when the drugs and, uh, and the promiscuity comes in. If you're not going to get paid for your work and you're not going to get uh, uh, people to give you the, the love and support that you desired for so long and worked so hard for, well, there's, uh, there's other things out there that will help you um, take care of that. And that's when we find ourselves behind the eight ball because, no pun intended, uh, you know, the bands have come out, people see us playing these little small places after having a couple of hit records, and uh, you find yourself trying to soothe the pain, so to speak, and that's what was a problem with us. We just couldn't, couldn't sustain success for a, a long periods of time, so uh, we tried to numb ourselves, and, uh, and that's when you find yourself uh, in, in a lot of trouble. And you, it's back and forth and back and forth. And I think a lot of bands have to go through that. And as grateful as we are for all the opportunities that we had, uh, we still have disdain for the, for the business of the music business it is. And we were pissed off. And the only thing that we could do to, to help soothe our pain was to get high and to write great songs. And along with the drugs came the great songs. And that was the inspiration at the time because it certainly wasn't the money because we ran out of that. And it certainly wasn't the people that were around us because a lot of those, once they feel that they're around something that's failing, they all bail. So uh, we were by ourselves and all we had was our band and, and the, uh, we had to do anything we could to keep it together. And the one thing that the common denominator was great songs. And I think we continue to keep writing them, and that's what kept us in this business up to this point. Now, as you kept writing these great songs, you know, and you said a lot of the songs came when you were high, but as you were writing, did you feel your writing style changing over the years? I mean, was it sitting that you noticed a difference where we do get wiser when we get older? We know this sits there, as you said. You know people don't want to be around when they're failing. You see the phoniness of stuff, especially I lived in L.A. for a long time. You, you see the phoniness everywhere. But did you sit there? Did you, did you find that? 
translating to your music and that was that coming out more because as you said you were high or was it just something that you really didn't address that in the beginning as I mean as you were in this phase this middle phase we knew where the songs were coming from and uh, we, were, we were very Donnie and I were very profound we spent all our time together every single day so if you want it you gotta want it 24 hours a day so that's all we do is we wrote songs and we wrote about everyday experiences all these records that you hear from enough stuff are all very autobiographical the songs are all about everyday experiences that we went through and maybe you have as well and that's as simple as I can put it you know whether it's a, a cigarette and ashtray or lipstick on a glass or uh, something that's uh, a phrase that somebody says or a torn relationship. There was so many different things that would help inspire those songs. And trust me, there was a plethora of great moments that happened in our life, good and bad, that gave us the inspiration to come up with these songs. Now, when you were, you know, at one point, I know Donnie left, I believe, and you went out as a three-piece. What is that like? Because, you know, as I said, you guys were together. You guys were in the trenches. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's like anything. The trust that you must find in each other. And true, there's bickering. There's true, there's anything, you know, egos. But what was it like when you started going out as a three-piece? Well, it was a real drag, okay? Because, uh, first of all, we, we fought through all of the whole thing that happened in the music business to change the cars I mentioned earlier. And here we are now. It's, it's 2001. I'm sitting home in my little apartment in Beverly. Can barely pay the rent. I'm uh, producing bands and writing songs with other artists, just doing, trying to help other people out as well as myself. And I get a telephone call from a guy named Troy Blakely, and he says, uh, "Chip, uh, Poison's getting ready to go on tour. Uh, we'd like we're considering having you guys come out and support us." He goes, "Are you available?" I said, "Absolutely." And there wasn't much money that was involved there. It was uh, it would have been enough enough warrant, quiet riot, poison. And it was a world tour. It was called the Glam Slam Metal Jam. We're hemorrhaging money at the time. Management companies getting ready to leave us because we're not the flavor of the month now. Uh, but for some reason, this guy in the band was really a big fan of Enough's Enough's catalog and loved our loved our whole arc of our career musically and thought we'd be a a good fit to support that tour. And I remember calling Guy and the guys on the phone saying, guys, I just got the Poison Tour. We got 73 dates. We're going out and playing sheds and arenas. They're like, ah, oh, come on, please, 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 don't bother me, guys. I don't want to hear about it. You know, the, your little, uh, the, the great ghost is not, uh, the great goose is not showing up there, you know, forget about it. It's it's a fad. It, 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 it's not going to happen, bro. Uh, don't bother me anymore about this, okay? I'm not doing it. And I said, honest to God, I just got off the phone with the agent. His name's Troy Blakely. He wants to he wants to ban on this tour right now. We leave next week. We have a tour bus, and we're going to go out and support these guys. And I got everybody over to the house, and we talked about it. We said, okay, we're going to go out and do it. The monies were terrible. The bus was going to cost more than we were going to make. We didn't care. We said, we got to go out there. We got to bring our equipment. Back line's not provided. Let's just make this thing happen. It's one more great shot for enough's enough. And we went out there and we started playing these shows. First day we showed up, uh, the road manager, Mark Hogue, comes up to me from Poison and says, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. He goes, I just caught uh, your your brother Donnie and uh, your guitar player on the tour bus giving cocaine to my crew. Uh, I can't have that. I need my crew working 24-7 working for me. 
if I catch you guys again doing anything like this, I'm going to have to throw you out the door. I said, no problem, guys. So the first day we had problems. And then um, to start the tour off, he had no idea that I brought an ounce of cocaine with me and uh, 1,500 methadone pills because my guys are trying to get off the drugs. And I thought, well, I'll be the doctor on the tour. I'll distribute the methadone pills to the band and to get them off the heroin, and we'll be able to get through this tour, no problem. We're gonna, we'll, we'll be fine in a couple weeks. Later. And I knew a lot about drugs. I'm, I'm, I'm a pro-experimentalist. I don't do them, but I, I've been taught by the best. And so we went on the tour, and the very first day, uh, we drove to the first show, and then we got there. I called the road manager from one of the bands and said, uh, I got a gift for you. I don't have a crew. We can't afford anybody. Can you help us out? And he says, yeah, what do you need? I said, I need a light color. I need a sound guy, and I need a stage manager. He says, okay, Chip, I'll get you all three of them. And he says, what do you got for me? I said, here, and I handed him an ounce of cocaine, and he took a taste of it, and he says, this is baking soda, it's not cocaine. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And little did I know that my guys were smoking the, the, the drugs in the bathroom on the, way to the sh- on the way to our first show. So we had no drugs. I had no, no bargaining power whatsoever. Uh, they were, we started off the tour pissing everybody off beyond belief, but when they met the band and they heard us play, we were charming, and, and the songs were strong, and I think that bonded us. It's the only thing that saved us, because it certainly wasn't uh, our disposition at the time, because we came in there as jack-offs. Uh, but because of my guys, uh, the love of music that they have, and because of how strong we are playing all through the years, uh, we were able to get through that, and we made the tour where it got better and better. And by the end of that tour, the performances were strong, and the band was playing great, and uh, the substance abuse wasn't as bad as it was in the past. And we thought, hey, we got another chance. Uh, we made it through this big tour, and uh, we can do this again. And right after that, we signed a record deal and uh, went to the studio and started recording another record, and we thought we were back on track. And then uh, after that, uh, uh, we found ourselves behind the eight ball. Once again, we lost our guitar player. He, uh, we were, the original band was back together again. We were going to do another record, and uh, um, my guitar player, Derek Frigo, did the rest of the show, we OD'd, and it took the wind out of our sails and stopped everything. And we had to fight ourselves to go back out on tour again. Donnie seen it all. He was disillusioned by the business of music, and his health was uh, failing him, so he says, I'm, I'm out. I, I, need to, I need to get away from this for a while. And we said, we, well, I want to play, I told him so me and the guitar player, Derek's replacement, uh, Johnny, uh, Johnny Monaco, and our drummer, said we're going to go back out there and tour. And we, so we got a tour going out with uh, the singer from Mr. Big and uh, started going out three-piece. And it was bittersweet. And I, thought, I talked Donnie into going out on that tour, too. I said, man, you got to come on back, bro. You're the pipes of the band. You're, you're so important to this. And I love you, and we, and we really need you. And he says, uh, all right, I'll come out, and I'll do the tour. And the, we showed up in Texas to play the first show, and he called me up on the phone. He says, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'll see you in a week or so, and I'll, I'll join up with you guys in the tour. I said, you got to be kidding me. The agents, we've already booked them, and they think it's going to be all of uh, the real guys. And he says, can't do it, bro. I'll see you in a week, and hung up the phone, and that was it. Ended up, He never showed up on the tour, and we ended up doing everything three-piece. And when we got through the tour, we realized, well, we can still do this. Uh, uh, Monaco is a great mimicker. He can he can sing a uh, different styles. He can sound like Ronnie James Dio, or he can sound like Donny V. And uh, he's very good at what he does. He's a great guitar player. And we, we said, let's just go out and play. And we just continue to tour and play shows as many as we could. 
and kept the name out there and kept it going. And because of that, with those opportunities, and when the record companies would come to us and say, "Can you make another record?" I would call Ty and say, "Can you come in the studio and, and let's make a record together?" And you don't have to tour if you don't want to, but we got to make a record. And he'd come in and we'd work for a week or two in the studio and put together these songs we've written, and then uh, we'd go back out three piece and we kept doing that as long as we could until uh, twenty until twenty thirteen when he says, "I'm done for good." So when he was done for good, did he mean completely in the business too? So like you, you weren't going to be writing together or performing together in the studio or was he just done completely on the road? I think it was, uh, I didn't know at the time, but it, when he mentioned it to me, I thought it would just be for a short little time. We did a, a tour in the UK in 2013. It didn't go very well. We were playing the small crowds, a couple hundred people a night. And, uh, one night we were driving to the show and I said, uh, you know, the reason that these clubs, these clubs aren't full right now is because you came over here a couple of years ago as a solo artist and pissed a lot of people off. And he says, oh yeah, well, F you. And I said, uh, that's I say the same to you. you. You shut the front door. And uh, I remember we hugged at the end of the last show and he says, I'll see you on the other side. And that was it. And uh, I thought that was kind of um, uh, disrespectful to a guy who's given his whole life to him up and is nothing but a loyal brother forever to him and for him to just uh, shut me out like that i was i was very disillusioned and uh certainly upset uh, and i came back with my tail between my legs to chicago and uh no money at all i did that whole tour by the way i didn't make anything and, and the guys in the band called they all got paid though and uh when i came back i said I, you know I, I can't do it like this you know, he's obviously he's not in the position to go out and tour and he obviously he doesn't know anybody anything because gave up a lot of his life just to write these songs with me and produce these records and go out and tour around the country. And he's tired. You know, uh, it's taking a lot out. All the, uh, um, the uh, substance abuse was really the hardest part of it all, just trying to get, just get yourself up and down for every single show. And he, and he was at a time where he just said, you know what, enough's enough, no pun intended. And so we went back out to four piece and, uh, Another guitar player, a guy named Tori Stolfragen, came in, great guitarist, and uh, he finished off the tour with us. And after that tour, as a four-piece, we realized, man, I don't know if we can go out without Donnie. You know, he needs pipes. As great as we were, we were getting through the shows, and they were good shows. There was a lot of um, animosity in the group and, and a lot of infrastructure, a lot of fighting in between the, in the organization. And the inmates were running the asylum because we had no management then. And uh, we just decided, okay, we're going to take a little bit of a break. And uh, then I got a phone call from the guitar, the singer-guitar player saying that, uh, Chip, uh, spoiler alert, uh, I can't go out and tour. I need at least six months off to move out of my life and, uh, and, and get my hands fixed. I got trigger finger, and every doctor I talked to told me I need an operation. So uh, good luck. And I was hit with a text message, actually, been here for the band for a couple of months after that one tour, so we get a text message saying from the other singer that he can't do the shows. I decided that, that maybe I'll try it for myself. And I talked to Donnie, and Donnie says, "Look, you wrote the songs of me, you produced the records. You should be out in front there, at least. So you out front singing. People are going to know it's enough's enough." And uh, I didn't really have the confidence, you know. I've been following who I think is one of the greatest singers of our generation, Donnie V. Uh, no one's going to take that away when I sit down and talk to guys like Steven Tyler or uh, you know, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick or, you know, Delay Scott Wilde, those guys hail my brother's pipes. 
So I said, that's going to be a tough little job, but I'll try it. So I, um, I called Tony Fennel from Ultravox. And uh, a good friend of mine, he was signed to Atco Lack Records for a while, and we were friends back in the late 80s. And I asked Tony, would you like to play on Enough Enough? And Tony goes, uh, mate, I'd love to try it. And he flew to Chicago, and we got together with the other guys in the band and uh, started rehearsing. And after two rehearsals, we realized, wow, this could be really good. And I uh, went out and been playing shows ever since and started keeping the band name out there and signed a new record deal with Frontiers and back at it again. Once you're in, you can't get out of this business, bro. It's a tough, it's a tough little game to play. Uh, but I'm in right now for one reason, that's just to make great music and go out there and play shows. So now when you're sitting there, when you go out, what's it like, you know, when you see fans who have followed you, you know, I mean, you guys have been around for a long time. There must just be, especially now with social media, I think now musicians get more adoration because people can, you're touchable, you're tangible somewhat, even though some people are idiots on Twitter. You know, there's a lot of people who give, you know, this. What's it like for you when you sit there and you, you see someone, you know, you like the same age as you, you, and you know they've been a fan since like 1984 or whatever, whatever, how long. What goes through your mind? Are you just sitting there going, man, you know, there's been ups and downs, but this is pretty cool because people have stuck with us. Well, certainly it's very flattering. All I think about every day is when I talk, talk to Steven Tyler, he says, man, nothing's worse than getting in the shower four or five in the afternoon and you, and you start singing and you got no pipes. And these people that came out to see you, uh, they're coming to the show. It was the first time they seen your pan, they got laid or, or they fell in love or they got high or it was a great experience. Some that you're just trying to, to capture that one more time in a bottle. So um, I think about, I just want a great show for the fans. And I realized what my brothers went through all these years and, you know, being told he's got to be straight and clean because it's not easy to do, but a little discipline never hurt anybody. So I find myself now in the shows. I've never found drugs. And I've been around it my whole life, but I've never been one of the drug guys. Uh, but I find myself like smoking last time. You know, when I'm out working, no pot smoking or nothing, no drinking at all, uh, totally focused and just all I care about, honest to God, is a great experience for a fan. Given a killer rock show, and it's a real rock band, okay? It's, this is not uh, this is not homogenized in any single way. And I'm playing all of the old hits that I, I wrote 20, 30 years ago. Those songs are really difficult to sing. And my focus is a great rock show, have a wonderful time, and leave an indelible mark with the audience. So. Uh, they'll come back and see us again. Now, how did you get the uh, the great affinity for hats? You ha you have cool hats. I'm, I'm a hat guy, but like I see pictures of you, I couldn't wear a hat like you. Like you have cool hats. Like you could wear a you could wear a skipper's hat, and everyone's like, "That's cool." I, I wear a skipper's hat. They think I'm a weirdo. When did you start wearing hats? All your life? Yeah, from the beginning. I actually, the very beginning of enough stuff, I was wearing hats. Although I'd go on stage sometimes, my do just pointing straight up to the to the ceiling and real puffed up a lot of uh, uh, different ways you get the hair to do that whether it's Vaseline or hairspray uh, but then I started from the first videos I was always wearing hats all the time and I just I always liked the John Lennon caps I liked that look and it was easy to keep you wouldn't have to wash your hair so much you just throw the cap on bingo you're ready to go and it just stuck with me for the longest time and uh I actually own a John Lennon cap that I have, uh, and I still have it to this day. 
Um, and I wore that a lot, as a, as a matter of fact, because it was something that Lennon had. So I thought it was it's pretty cool to have something for the, from the Beatles. Uh, but for, for the most part, uh, the hat's a big part of my repertoire, and I knew it's yeah, wearing the hat. Uh, I stood alone. I had my own look and my own signature. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want. I'm, I'm glad we caught up because you know, you you guys had a great history, and you have a great history. And now you said you've had 20 albums. How many do you think you're gonna end up making? Are you looking to make? I mean, how when's, when? How often are you churning out new material now? Uh, I'll tell you. I remember an old. Uh, well, I put first of all, I put records out. We put a, a covered in gold record out in 2016, which was a conglomeration of nothing but cover songs. We got permission from Prince and the Beatles and Queen. And Stevie Wonder and some of the great bands out there who are kind of to let us uh, record their songs because licensing is, is certainly difficult to put out cover songs. Uh, and then at, right after that, I put up my solo record out, which is called uh, Strange Time. And I uh, was just keen songs on that. I was able to get um, Dale Fazio from Missing Persons and Stephen Ellis from Guns N' Roses and Rob Zanna from Cheap Trick to come down and jam me on that record. And that certainly helped out our perception. And right after that, uh, in 2016, at the end of the year, last year, we put out our latest record, which is called Clowns Lounge. And it's uh, it's an archival record featuring the original band, songs never released, along with a couple of songs that uh, we recorded as the band as we are now today. And, uh, you know, the, how long can I, put, can I put records out? Well, as long as I stay alive. I mean, I, who gears up something and envisions a failure? I gear it up for success. Every single record that we put out is another chance for us to get out there and have some action happening in some capacity, whether it's live shows or, or licensing, getting the songs out there. Some, some kind of, maybe there's a producer out there or a director that goes, man, I love this band. I want to get them in the next movie or get a soundtrack, and I think that's enough to fit in that. Um, without coming up with new material and, and great new stuff, those opportunities disappear. So I think there's more records in the can. How many? I don't know. I got four of them right now with the original band. Uh, but I want to put out fresh new stuff, and maybe there'll be some more solo records in there. I know Donnie's recording a solo record right now, and believe me, this stuff is terrific. That's a killer songwriter right there with great pipes. He'll come up with something killer. People will love it. hope he gets a good producer because he deserves that. Uh, in the meantime, for enough, enough, I'm keeping the name out there. It's going to help him. It's going to help the band. The shows have been strong. The people have spoken. That's why I listen to the fans. And they seem to be real happy with the, the band, the way we sound right now. We just got off a major tour. with uh, We were out with Kiss, and then we were out with Ace Frehley, believe it or not. We did a month and a half with him. We did a European tour for uh, a month over in uh, that part of the country. So we're still spreading our wings, and there's a lot of stuff that still hasn't been said about enough enough. Uh, as far as how long it's going to go, um, I can't answer that question, but I'm going to keep the shooting train moving as long as I got cold. That's awesome, Those man. Are the songs. Man, I want, I want to thank you for coming on. You know, it's always I always love when I talk to musicians, especially musicians I've been listening to. I want to thank you. People, go to the website, isenoughsenough.com. Your Twitter is, are you at chipsenough? That's correct. And it's Twitter, so follow them on Twitter, at chipsenough. Go to the website, enough's enough. Look them up. Go buy their CDs. Go buy your down, whatever you guys buy these days. Uh, and so, yeah, so follow Chip. Uh, follow me. I'm at Cooper Talk. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Cooper Talk has been presented by Walk My Mind. And guys, I will talk to you next week. <laughs>